0: Hello Woodworms, I'm Ray Defterius, and this is the Tool Book Review, the show for people who like to do woodworking and like to read about woodworking too. Are you looking for another good historical book? Something to fill the gap now that you've finished reading The Joiner and Cabinet Maker? Perhaps you're just interested in another live interview with the master woodworker? Regardless, today's show covers off both of these topics. When I started the series, One of the people that I would have loved to have interviewed was Shannon Rogers, but I felt that reaching out and asking him to join the show without having at least a little bit of a track record was inappropriate. As the show progressed, I kept returning to this thought that maybe it was time to reach out, and at the same time, there was a book, The Artisan of Ipswich by Robert Rule, that kept lurking in the back of my head as something that I wanted to review. In today's show, I'm going to fix both of these issues. You'll also hear me mention in today's show that this is the end of the series. Not to worry, I'm still going to be doing great book reviews, I'm still going to be doing interviews going forward, but I'm looking to change tack a little bit. What I wanted to do originally in the first series was put together a list of books that I felt that you really needed to read in your first year of woodworking. I'm now going to be starting a second series where I go into some books that are a little bit more focused or complicated, depending on your perspective. I'm going to be looking at books that focus on specific furniture types, for example, but also taking a look at some of the excellent books by Tolkien and Walker that help you improve your design vocabulary. Today's episode is a long episode, so without any further ado, let's jump into the interview and I'll follow up by concluding with a book review. So I'm delighted today to have Shannon Rogers on the podcast with me. And Shannon, I think for those of you listeners out there that don't know Shannon, maybe if you could just give a brief introduction and
1: tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Wow. Where to begin? I I like wood. (laughs) <laughs> that, that, that sums it up in in a nutshell. I think, I mean, I've been woodworking technically since I was little, you know, took a big break when I was in high school because I didn't have shop class or any of that stuff. But, uh, you know, I tell people my very first woodworking project was a proton pack when Ghostbusters came out. I wanted to be a Ghostbuster, so I built a proton pack in my dad's basement workshop using scraps of wood and kind of went from there, took a big long break and got back into woodworking in my 20s and, you know, did the power tool route that was really all that anybody really knew you know we had guys like norm abrams on tv but even then my local pbs station seems to not like woodworking even back when i lived in colorado and today when i live in maryland neither local public television station really liked to show woodworking shows so i i didn't really have any exposure like a lot of people say to norm abrams it was just that's what you did you had a table saw and everything and then uh One day I took a trip to Colonial Williamsburg and it wasn't my first trip either. I remember going as a little kid, but I went, you know, as an adult and was just... I just fell in love, you know, this idea of working by hand, using hand tools. And I had a couple of hand planes and things floating around my shop that I had inherited from my wife's grandfather, who uh, built homes. Actually, uh, a lot of the really old, lovely homes and well, not so lovely areas of Baltimore now, but used to be quite lovely areas in the 50s. He built a lot of those. and. I had gotten into woodworking when he was nearing the end of his life and he decided to leave me all of his tools. So I had some hand planes and some saws. I also had some old power routers that, you know, look like something out of the atomic age, really kind of shiny, sleek looking, George Jetson looking type things. But uh, that exposure to hand tools at Williamsburg was a total watershed for me. It was not even so much a, I can't believe that it can be done without electricity, but I didn't know that that even existed, and, and you know, you step back logically and you think, well, obviously it must have. I mean, it's not like electricity's always been around. We knew that, you know, there were carpenters and cabinet makers hundreds of years ago, but it was just a total eye-opening experience. And I'm a lover of history to begin with, and the rest was there. It was it, that was it. I had already started a blog called The Renaissance Woodworker. I started that in 2008, 2007, well, somewhere in there. And uh, that was very power tool focused. And there's actually, there's a a post titled The Beginning of My Badness or something like that back in 2008, which was really me saying, you know what, I'm gonna give this hand tool thing a try. And over the next couple of years, I just slowly started getting rid of my tools, my power tools. I would uh, mark a day down on the the wall and say, okay, this is the last time I used my table saw and I'd go about doing my work. And if I determined a year had gone by and I hadn't really needed that, I sold it and I got rid of it. And eventually I ended up with a shop that had no power in it. In 2010, I decided I kind of want to share some more of this. So I launched a site called the Hand Tool School. And it's exactly that. It's, it's an online school teaching people how to build things with hand tools. And the, the principle has never been, you know, only build with hand power is bad. But the principle is that learning how to build things by hand will actually make you a better woodworker. If you go back and use nothing but power tools from that moment on, what you learned using hand tools will inform you to be a more precise, a lot more in tune with the wood woodworker, there, i.e. a better woodworker. So here we are uh, 10 years later. Hand tool school is bigger than it's ever been. I've got, I don't know, a couple thousand people that are active members of it, probably twice that many who like, bought something at one point and I never really saw them again, but that's to be, to be pretty common. And I'm the hand tool guy. I do a podcast called Wood Talk that's been going on for 10 years. That's uh, two kind of power tools slash hybrid type guys and one weird hand tool guy talking wood. Uh, I do another podcast called The Lumber Update because by day, I actually am the director of marketing for several hundred year old lumber company. So it kind of has all come together. You know, this woodworking thing started as a hobby. It turned into kind of a little what's the modern parlance side hustle, I guess, which then kind of turned into a full-time job, even though I already had another full-time job, but my woodworking related side job helped to land my woodworking related main job, uh, working for a lumber yard. And now the two of them kind of go hand in hand. And uh, I don't know, I sometimes wonder where I'm going to come up with that 26th or 27th hour in the day, but it's a lot of fun. And my life is pretty much all about wood these days.
0: Yeah, I certainly can sympathize with the workload that that's put on you. I mean, I, I know what it takes to do a podcast and you're doing wood talk, obviously. You're also doing, you know, Shannon's lumber update, but I know you're doing weekly updates for the hand tools school and you're producing content for the school. So there's, there's mm-hmm. certainly a, a lot of work there. I think for the listeners as well, Shannon's also being a little bit modest. You're also a prize-winning triathlete, Shannon.
1: <laughs> I'm undefeated for undefeated. 2020.
0: I'm undefeated. undefeated for 2020. That's that's fantastic.
1: It was something that I was a cyclist in, in high school and college. I raced pretty seriously at one point. The University of Colorado has a very competitive cycling team. Granted, I was never you know a general classification rider. I was never, for Tour de France fans, I was never a guy gunning for the yellow jersey. I was what they call a domestique, basically a glorified water boy. I'm the guy that sits out front and absolutely kills himself while the guy who's going to win the race rides on my slipstream and I carry him up a mountain until I absolutely die and fall off the back and he goes on and wins the stage. That was my job. I did that for, for years. And then You know, real life happened and you got a real job and you sat at a desk. And actually I was in sales for a while. So not only was I sitting at a desk, but I was lunching clients and I gained an enormous amount of weight. And you know, there really was no like come to Jesus moment. There was no, you know, heart palpitation or any of that. It was just, look, I'm tired of being out of shape. So uh, almost three years ago, I kind of turned it around and lost a whole bunch of weight and got back into cycling in a big way. And then that turned to triathlon and for 2020, Actually, end of last year, I said, you know what? I'm going to give this triathlon thing a try. So I started training and I did a a triathlon in February and actually won the thing, which was a little shocking. Not like won my age group, but won the whole thing. And I was just blown away. And granted, it was a small field. It's not like thousands of people. It was a couple hundred. But then COVID hit and the other six races I had scheduled for this year all got canceled. So officially I am undefeated as a triathlete. I'm thinking maybe I should just hang it up and just call myself undefeated at this point. But now at this point, I've got too much money in race entry fees that won't be refunded and have passed on to next year. So I got to do all my races next year.
0: I think it'd be interesting you go read Joe Friel's book, yep. Triathletes Training Bible. They don't say anything in there about what you have to do if there's a pandemic and you have to <laughs> just get rid <laughs> right. of all of those blocks that you've got planned for the whole year.
1: Swim training has been interesting. I mean, pools are back open here again, but they're you know heavily restricted by appointment only per lane and all that fun stuff. But yeah, there was, uh, there was about four months there where I trained for swimming without ever stepping into a pool, just using like stretch bands and things like that, which was kind of different.
0: Can imagine that's very different. So, um, Shannon, kicking on to the book for today, I know you and I spoke about it a little bit. There was certainly probably a whole range of books we could have stocked a library between the two of us, I guess. But we've chosen The Artists of Ipswich by Robert Terule. And I know it's one of your favorite historical books. It's one that doesn't pop up possibly as often in conversation, like maybe The Joiner and cabinet maker or The Village Carpenter. But I know you love it. And you know what makes it such a special book, in your opinion?
1: Well, it was the—I guess you could call it—the provenance, how it came into my life, was through a particularly cool recommendation. I was at uh, Woodworking in America 2010 or 2011, somewhere, one of the earlier ones, and uh, Peter Fallensby was teaching, and it was really when Peter kind of first kind of was launched onto the scene. You know, obviously Peter's been a, a an interpreter at Plymouth Plantation. Uh, he's retired from there now but had been for quite some time but kind of laboring in, in anonymity and the whole green woodworking and 17th century style of woodworking and cabinetry was very new and unknown it, there was very little spotlight on at the time so peter was kind of like this up-and-comer even though he'd been around for decades so he did a little deal about 17th century carving The typical stuff, if you know anything about Peter Follinsby, his style of carving, using, you know, a couple of flat gouges and a V gouge and and very, very flat, low relief carving, typical of Jacobean style furniture. And Peter gave a, probably one of the best lectures I've ever been to. Just an amazing speaker. It's obvious that this is a man who spends a lot of time in front of the public. It's obvious this is a man who spends a lot of time answering silly questions from tourists, too. Very, very patient man. I spent a little time, we can maybe get to that later, doing my own interpretation in a museum. And there's a lot of the same questions. You could just see this guy was a performer and really could hold a room and... He mentioned in passing in was one of his lectures about, you know, well of course it was talked about. Terule talked about this, and and you know Thomas Dennis, who is our main character in this book, and he kept throwing that name out, and it was kind of funny because he he made no, you know, Turrul as in Robert Turrul from the artisan of Ipswich. He never said that. He just said Turrul wrote about this and Turrul wrote about that. So finally, I went up to him after the lecture and I said, you know, forgive me, but. Who's to rule? <laughs> like, who are you talking about? And he said, "Oh my goodness, you have got to read this book and call it kind of a starstruck moment, because, as I said, Peter was was relatively unknown, but I knew enough to know this is a guy who demands respect." And he like pulled me aside and talked to me for 30 minutes about what a great book the Artisan of Ipswich was and how it really changed his view on what he, as a 17th century interpreter, should be doing day in and day out. So, I immediately went and picked up a copy of that book and I think read it in one night. And it was eye opening. It's interesting because it's almost like a novelization. And I wonder actually if this is where the whole joiner and cabinet maker idea, well, no, that was a reprint. But, you know, there'll be a chapter that will be kind of very historical, very nonfiction. And then Teruel rolls into a chapter that is almost like fiction, like a novel, where he's telling the story of this. This joiner, this 17th century joiner in Ipswich, Massachusetts named Thomas Dennis. And, you know, it's told in in a third person kind of omniscient voice. So there's still a little bit of that nonfiction feel to it. But the way that he narrates as Thomas goes throughout his day was... It was totally eye-opening. You really got a peek into the day-to-day of a joiner, not a cabinet maker, but a joiner. And this was really my first understanding of the difference between a joiner and a cabinet maker. And and this was the difference that was very, very stark, especially in the 17th century. As you rolled into the 18th century, the line started to blur a little bit. But in the 17th century, everything was, especially 17th century North America, you know, in the colonies, very, very early colonies of Massachusetts. This was a very isolated uh, practice. You know, there was a joiner in the village, you know, a blacksmith. There wasn't, there was no cosmopolitan nature. Like I I mentioned Williamsburg earlier, and you could have multiple cabinet makers and multiple joiners and multiple house rides. And even, even draw a distinction between a cabinet maker, a joiner and a carpenter and a sawyer, all being different trades. This was an instance where there was a guy that worked essentially on a farm. You know, half of his day was probably spent surviving, you know, animal husbandry and things because he had to eat. He had his own land that he had to maintain. But then he also had customers and that was his joinery work. And I just remember when I first read it, I remember coming away thinking, why hasn't anybody written like a woodworking fiction book? And to this day, I still kind of want to write one. I imagine the market is probably pretty small. (laughs) imagine it'd be difficult to find a publisher, although Lost Art Press would probably jump all over that. Uh, I should give Chris a call. Um, He would probably do that. But then I'd have to actually write it. (laughs) That's a whole other issue. But this was my first peek into what it would be like if somebody wrote a woodworking fiction book and you could follow the journey. You know, well, I mean, what was it? Um, Roy Underhill, Roy Underhill's book, uh, the Calvin Cobb book. Calvin Cobb, yeah. That was the you know radio drama, um, which also, by the way, that same Woodworking in America was the year that uh, Roy told me that he wanted to produce Calvin Cobb. It goes way back then that he wanted to produce that. Interestingly enough, we were talking side by side at urinals in a restroom. One of the wonderful things about Woodworking Conferences is you get to meet your heroes literally up close and personal. <laughs> but yeah, having that recommendation of, of Peter and knowing that Peter used this book to inform himself as an historic interpreter was pretty interesting because it was just like six months later that I actually started volunteering at the Stepping Stone Museum here in Maryland where while I wasn't, you know, strictly an historical interpreter, I wasn't dressed in garb. I was dressed in jeans and a t-shirt that said Stepping Stone Museum on it. But again, working with the tools and telling the story of, in our case, it was a Victorian era farm, but it was really, I keep using the word watershed, but I, I think of this book as that watershed moment where you started, rather you stopped thinking of a cabinet maker or a joiner in the abstract, and started thinking them more as a person, as a person who had a daily life and a daily list of tasks, just like any of us do. You've got your list of tasks in the morning, and maybe it's spent all day on a laptop, you know, or maybe you're a contractor and you've got your series of things to do. It was exactly the same 300 years ago, but you you had obviously a very different understanding of wood. And Teruel does an incredible job of not only telling the story through Dennis's eyes, through the main character's eyes, but then stepping back and putting on his professor hat and saying, okay, Dennis mentions this in the novel and here's what he's talking about. And there's great diagrams, you know, the several plates taken from Rubo that kind of show these are the tools that Dennis was working with. Great cross sections of trees, explaining medullary rays and what rift material looks like and how splitting works. And you know, this is well before Peter Galbert came onto the scene with his chairmaker's notebook. This was pretty cutting edge stuff, you know, although I should say this book was published in what, 04, something like that. It's not really that old yeah. of a book. But if you if you think back to 2004, there was a, it was a wasteland when it came to uh, books on this subject. You know, the woodworking books that existed were definitely not talking about 17th century styles. The museum books, the decorative arts books, weren't talking about 17th century. They were still stuck in the golden age of furniture, talking about Chippendale and Queen Anne style and federal period. Nobody was talking about Jacobean or, quote, pilgrim furniture. So this was um, this was a big deal. It was definitely a departure from what you found out there.
0: I found it by lack of, early in my hand tool career, but I was looking for it in a way because I, I love history. I've written contributions to a few history books uh, a decade ago, and I've always been passionate about history. So the moment I get into a hobby, you know, any hobby, I also want to go and find out what the history was. So it was logical for me when I started woodworking, go and, go and find some books and go and see what you can get. So I found it quite early, but it's hard for me not to draw the conclusion now that it's been very, very influential because you mentioned um join and cabinet maker and, and certainly not the text, the reprint of the original. But even the way Chris then takes the book and Joel takes the book after that and they do that sort of experimental archaeology, the shop based research if we want to call it that. And they go and they they make those projects, which I think makes the reprint so special, you know, in, in terms mm-hmm. of the value it brings. It's hard not to think that Robert didn't really almost just burst onto the scene with that as a way of writing a book where you do the historical research, you do the interpretation, you talk about it, but you get your hands dirty and you go and make it. And, you know, another book I absolutely love is um, from Klein, from Mortis and Tenon, And, and, you know, you look at what he's done and it's the same thing. He's not talking about Jonathan Fisher. He's making Jonathan Fisher's furniture and then talking about Jonathan Fisher. And I think that format of a, a wonderful narrative story, really detailed information you know and the non-fiction element there when you pick up the artisan of it if you want to build that piece to the exact tolerances there's all the measurements there's all the drawings and the diagrams but pulling that together and then the notes around his own experience i mean one of the things that jumped out for me in the book on the second reading was he he spoke about how they'd made two versions of it. In the one version, they'd cut the tenons and because of happenstance, had let them dry a little bit before they put them into the mortises. Whereas on the other one, they'd done it, you know, mortise first versus tenons. And the one is a rock solid reproduction and the other one is one that that wobbles, you know. So I think those combination of those three elements was you know, really quite unique for me to see in a book. And, and I think the historical books that have followed in that sort of stead, uh, I think they learn a lot from what Robert put out beforehand.
1: Agreed. Yeah. And, you know, if the listeners don't know, Robert Teruel does build 17th century furniture. He actively is still actively building in Vermont. So again, you know, like you know, Klein or Schwars, he's done the work. He's done the research, uh, absolutely. And and there's quite a few shop drawings and some photographs of carvings and things in the book that he has done himself. But you know, one of the one of the other things that this book kind of came at the right time for me because I was starting to what I characterize as like the transformation from power tool to hand tool was a loosening of tolerance. You know, I kept thinking as I was moving into hand tools, you know, I've got to be really exact and you know, it requires a great deal of hand-eye coordination and just skill, craftsmanship and skill in order to cut that tenon so exactly and to plane that board so exactly. And what I began to learn in reading this book was it's actually, I don't want to go so far as to say the opposite, but there's a lot less precision. And because of the, all of the fitting of the joinery is done you know, in a case-by-case basis and, and many things are done by eye and laid out by eye, it becomes much less about the precision and much more just about cutting to a line. And that was that was a major epiphany for me. This book really showed me that it's not so much about accuracy and all this precision and, and certainly not measuring and marking, but cutting to make it look good. I mean, the whole idea, and, and again, coming off of a lecture from Peter Follensby where he had just shown us that Let's undercut the back shoulder of that tendon because no one's ever gonna see it and it's gonna make the front shoulder come up tight because the back shoulder's not touching. And that was like permission, permission to cut a sloppy joint. Like, <laughs> you know, that sounds, that's an oversimplification because it's not a sloppy joint. It's a joint that looks fantastic, but it doesn't necessarily look that great on the inside, but nobody cares because no one's ever gonna see the inside. And this was like this sudden kind of an opening of like a chest of secrets. These guys, while they're amazing craftsmen, don't get me wrong, they weren't godlike in their accuracy and their precision. They just focused on what counted. And they stacked the cards in their favor by undercutting a join here or not bothering to play in the backside. And there's several uh, passages... In the book, especially I think it's one of the last chapters, Dennis in the Shop, where he's actually walking through a kind of a typical day and he's splitting parts out. And he just leaves the rifts on the rift split face on certain pieces. And really what he's focusing on is finding a section of board that's wide enough to make a rail or style. And what he's got is a wedge shape. And, you know, the other side, the narrow point of the wedge, is not wide enough to be that style. But All he cares about is that the wide point is wide enough. So the part itself, the style of the rail of this chest is actually a pie shape. You look at that now and you're like, oh, that's just sloppy. I can't believe he did that. Or, you know, I don't have enough wood to do this um, because it's not thick enough all the way through. Didn't bother him at all. He just went ahead and did it because what mattered was that outer face matching. So again, it was this, this permission to relax a little. And and not get so caught up in getting everything so precisely flat and fitting together perfectly. That was a big deal for me. <laughs> it's coming out of kind of a power tool upbringing.
0: And it's a it's a hard uh, transition to make. You know, I think the project for me that was probably a tipping point on that was the saw till that I made. And you know, I'd red hands employed a right, and I thought I really need to put this to to practice. And I said, well, the back of the ship lap is firstly, it's a shop appliance, but secondly, it's facing the wall. This is not a place where I have to worry about tear out. And I I had to push myself to do this, but I took the scrub plane and I basically scrubbed it, made sure that it would fit into the the grooves. And and that was my drill. And when I, when I did that, it was such a hard thing because I'm so used to seeing IKEA furniture. You know, you're so used to seeing that horrible soilless, but quite precise generally cut furniture that that's Mm -hmm. out there in the outside world so having that as you say permission to go and do something like that and then worry about the important things and you know you know i've just finished building the cupboard to narnia that it's you know as it's now been christened but my daughter saw the back of it she was horrified she was like dad what have you done here and this piece (laughs) doesn't match that piece and this and i said gabby i'm wasting no time on that. I said, we've waited three years for me to start building the um, cupboard in the first place, but I'm going to spend a lot of time making sure that the front panels are smooth because that's what you're going to see. So, you know, even though you're painting it, that's the place. I don't want shadow lines when a raking light catches it and you and you see a plane mark. But I said, the back, I want the back to be functional. I want it to be strong. That's why it's been designed the way it's been designed. And, you know, I don't know what the tolerances were, but Maybe it's an eighth of an inch, but there's there's some bits that are maybe an eighth of an inch proud on the back, and I'm just said that's it, Gabs. I'm leaving it like that because the effort to plane one of those rails, you know, down by that eighth of an inch is just frankly it's just time wasted, and I can get on to doing the other stuff. And she didn't understand, um, made a lot of horrible, weird sounding teenage noises, <laughs> and I painted the cupboard and I stuck the cupboard in the room, and she went, Dad, I love it. This is absolutely beautiful. So. You know, time spent in the right places, time spent in the wrong places. But, you know, I think one of the easiest mistakes maybe to make with hand tools is to fall into this view of I have to be machine precise on all my milling. I need S4S. I mean, you know, you advocated yeah. I'm kicking an open door here. But if I've got a, a reference face and a reference edge, I, I do not need to go and make the other side absolutely perfect except maybe in certain circumstances. I mean, I get get there's a a time and place for it, but if it's going to be on the inside of a chest of drawers that nobody's going to see, I just want the joinery to work and I don't need to have that perfection. And I certainly think that came across in in the book uh, very clearly. And I mean, the the drawings and the photos, when you look at it, you understand this is how they work. They needed to eat. They needed to get that stuff down. I would die happy if I could carve the front like he'd carved the front. Um, But the back, you know, I I think... uh, uh, a blind man in a dark room could uh, do a better job of the back if he, if he just worked at it long enough, and you know that's perfectly acceptable in terms of what he was making.
1: I think that, especially the the chapters, the, what I, what we'll call the the novel style chapters, I would love someone to narrate it because Terule writes in a very evocative way. I mean, he he talks about the background noises, you know, the the sounds of of dogs barking and carts going by. And he, you know, again, like we said before, it's so obvious that Teruel has worked with a plane in his hand because he, he talks about how Dennis secures the work, you know, using, using um, an iron dog, a tooth stop. And uh, a batten to keep it from moving sideways. and he, he talks about you know the the tick tick noise it makes as he runs the, the plane across it as it takes off the high spots. And it's there's a lot of just sound imagery throughout the whole thing that it would actually be wonderful to kind of listen to it as an audiobook. I could actually see putting it on in my shop and doing the work while I listen. It's just it's, yeah, evocative is the right word for it. But if you take the time, So you'd be fun to listen to, but then you want to go back and read it. Because if you actually take the time to read and and reread some of those sentences, there are some real gems in there. For instance, I've been for several years now, been an advocate of what I call the spot planning method. You know, the traditional method that you'll find written about in in a lot of books and certainly the mantle has been picked up by Christopher Shores in recent years of, of, you know, working, traversing the board and then working diagonally across the grain and then finally working along the grain. I just don't believe in that anymore and I believe in working with the grain the entire time, diagnosing your high spots or moving just those high spots, you know, then you have what I call a flat-ish board. And now you can go lengthwise with the grain. And Thomas Dennis actually does that in several points in the book. He talks about, you know, Well, as I said before, I was using this part for a rail that was kind of wedge shaped. And he said, what was important was the front face. So he was going to do that first and probably only that. So he picked up the board and he held it up to the blue sky and saw, okay, there's a high spot there that needs to go first. And he removed that high spot. And then he began to work along the entire length of the board once the high spot was moved. That's the spot planing method right there. And it's clearly, you know, and it's told in, in more poetic language and again, more imagery being used, but even his choice of using, you know, a tooth stop and using a batten for, for lateral movement. I mean, there are gems one after another that can be taken into your own shop and employed, you know, using your own planes and your own projects.
0: That's certainly, you know, along the lines of that efficiency. You know, I mean, I think when you talk, you know, spot planing, I I don't think these guys had the luxury of sitting there and traversing a board backwards and forwards and, and going through that process. They wanted to be efficient. And, you know, when I first tried the spot planing, it's quite difficult because you have to... Recalibrate to say, well, I'm going to remove bits where I need to remove bits. Not, I'm just going to whack the plane up and down the board, and, uh, and things will eventually come right on their own. So there's certainly a little bit more um, thinking and looking at the wood. It sounds quite weird because you feel like you're slowing down to to go much faster. But that feel for the wood, that way of working, I'm, I'm sure that you know when you were at the Stepping Stone Museum, you must have also found that as you are working with those tools, the limitations of the tools or the way the tools work. There's definitely efficiencies in just learning. How do I use this? How do I do this well? How do I do this well enough? You know, you you talk about your flattish boards, but just doing what needs to be done so that you can get on. These guys had to eat, and I mean, I think it's no secret that you know, in any of these centuries, these people were not earning a lot of money from doing this. So they wanted to do that. They wanted to get it out there, and they wanted to do it efficiently. And I, I think there's another bit in the book that I found very interesting on the secondary read. I didn't even pick this up the first time I read it, but they speak about how the apprenticeship helps them develop skills and ways of tackling small problems so that you almost got these solutions that were always applied in the same shops because people didn't have time to think. You know, if they faced this problem, they did this thing, they'd been taught what to do, and they just got on with it and they pushed on through. They didn't have the luxury of saying to their wife, oh, yeah, that piece of furniture I was making, it's arriving in three weeks because uh, I just didn't feel like it or I'm taking a little bit more time on planning the word. They had to get the stuff out the shop.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, the other thing is, you know, certainly there are chapters where he's working in the shop, but, you know, the earlier chapters, one of them's called Dennis in the Woods. I mean, where does he get his raw material? And that again was, you know, you want to talk a a romantic kind of view of things where you can actually go to the woods and chop down a tree, or in many cases, he bought logs from... Uh, a landowner somewhere else and was able to select his material and get his material into the shop and really kind of take ownership of the entire process that again was you know we've seen a little bit more of that i mean my buddy, Mac Cremona, and is Mr. Sawmill, you know, Mr. Urban Logger. And you're seeing a lot more of that pop up. But again, back in 2010, nobody was doing this. And if they were, they, you know, they didn't have a YouTube channel. So nobody knew anything about it. So I guess in some ways, it's actually kind of cool, because we're seeing a lot of this stuff coming back into vogue that is here, you know, in print, in in this book, which is very exciting, I think. Although I will say, um, to your point earlier about efficiency, one of the greatest things, greatest teachers for me when I was at the Stepping Stone Museum was the weather. Uh, in the middle of summer, our shop uh, had very poor ventilation. It was actually a center block wall on on three three walls, and it was kind of open and almost like a, a lean-to idea. But once you step back into the shop, out of the, the front, there was zero air circulation. So, you know, many times on a July, August day, it was 96 degrees Fahrenheit and humidity and you're in there planing a board and sweat is just pouring off of you. And you're thinking, I got to get this done. And efficiency comes from, I don't want to like pass out. I don't want to do this anymore. This sucks. (laughs) I got to speed this up and find a shortcut, if you will. And Uh, And there were many instances, while certainly it wasn't as demanding as, you know, I've got to get this product out the door so that I can, you know, have food to live. But there were many times where the museum needed certain things and we had a limited time to work. And oftentimes there were visitors that kind of interrupted your flow and you were talking and all this stuff. So you couldn't really focus on working. So, you know, many times you'd have an hour in the entire weekend to actually focus on work. But yet we had to get, you know, a gate built over here because there literally were sheep grazing and the sheep could get out. Till we built the gate, we had that like orange construction netting that just looked terrible and oh, so not authentic. So other people, the management of the museum was like, hey, guys, we need that gate. So there was some pressure to get some of this stuff done. And suddenly uh, those little shortcuts, those ways to get that gate done while not passing out from heat exhaustion turned into actual practical tips on how to just work faster, work more efficiently without dehydration.
0: You mentioned Thomas in the Woods, but I certainly didn't realize before I'd read the book how regulated the lumber was in the in the new world. You know, you certainly had a sense in in England of that. I remember reading about the history of the, the king's broad arrow being stamped into trees, you know, because that was the king's and, you know, mm-hmm. you knew that forests belonged to lords and ladies and all the rest of that. But just reading about in 50, 60 years that 100 regulations passed about who could get wood and what wood they could get and what they were allowed to and He obviously gets allocated these six trees, but the narrative of him in the woods, I mean, that's like a love story to Oak. I read it and Oaks a Wood, I enjoy. I I like, well, certainly once I got used to it, I enjoy it because uh, I find it fun to work with. And once you know how it splits, you can certainly use that to your advantage. But that chapter is really, you know, also kind of unique in a way in this kind of a book, just absolutely going into the properties of the wood and what was great about it and how that would work. But I was curious, I know you work at J. Gibson McElvain and I'll, I won't do uh, the wood talk thing here and just make up some random strange names there, but um, you've obviously been exposed to quite a lot of woods and I'm, I know you've got a little bit of a thing for teak, but I was just wondering, is there a particular species that you love?
1: Oh, absolutely. Walnut, no question. Uh, walnut is, is far and away my favorite wood. Although it's interesting when you talk you talk about oak and specifically when we talk about oak in the context of this book, I remember again, that lecture with Peter Follinsby. you know, he started talking about oak and he, he specifically said, I'm, I'm using red oak. And he paused for the groan to run through the room because most people today do not like red oak. And I squarely blame Home Depot. And I actually blame lumberyards like the one that I work at because kiln dried red oak is terrible. It's awful. Oak for such a long time has had such a huge demand in the commercial sector that, trust me, oak is in no danger of being deforested by any means. But because there's such a commercial demand for it, so many of the logs are sawn down to smaller sizes to meet the specific commercial demand. There's no reason to carry a, a bunch of 15-inch white oak or even 8-inch white oak because most of the parts people need are six inches, four inches, or 12 inch stair treads. So the logs are milled specifically into those sizes and nowhere in between because there's no point for it. Then they're kiln dried within an inch of its life to try to make it as stable as possible. They're sawn for yield rather than figure. So quarter sawn goes right out the window. You just don't see it very often. And it's not a fun wood to work. But, and and I say that, you know walnut is a fun wood to work. Steamed, green, dry, whatever. But red oak when green is a revelation. It's an absolutely incredible wood to work. And because of its just massive pores and large number of pores, it actually dries quite evenly. So that was, again, another kind of realization in reading this book is prior to that, it was he was kiln dried or nothing. Like, you know, what do you mean? He's working with green, sopping wet wood. That's ridiculous. But by the time he planed this stuff down, by the time he carved it, I mean, it was dropping moisture like mad to the point where it's. 19 18 percent when it's done but the construction method he used the drawboard joints that he used the frame and panel construction that he used completely doesn't care about the wood movement yeah it's gonna shriek some more but that's fine I planned for that and that again was was a real revelatory moment and Peter kept hitting that point home you know he's standing up there carving and people are just blown away by that carving and you said it earlier you wish you could carve a panel that well give it a shot. You'd be surprised how easy it is, that low relief, Jacobean style of carving. It's all about a V-gouge and a mallet and following a line. And if you have green oak, it's like carving cheese, a hard cheese, granted, you know, but not so hard that it crumbles. It's it's an incredible, incredible wood to work. So what's your favorite wood? <laughs> the next question should be, how dry is it? Dried, I love working walnut. Actually, I love working teak. It's a shame it's so bloody expensive, but- Oak, I would never, ever, ever say. I would choose white oak over red oak, but if it's green, that might be my favorite wood to work. It's just incredible to work with.
0: There's a phenomenal difference. I mean, we had a cork oak in our garden, and it was quite a solid, robust oak. I mean, I think it had probably been sixty, seventy years, and that that went down in a storm probably two years ago now. And um, the guys came to cut it up, and I said, "Now you, you, you're leaving. You're leaving all the big bits here, and I'll and I'll take it from there." And I and I had to split the um the bowl out and that was a very very hard weekend of my life in terms of you know wedges and you know (laughs) pounding with the with the splitting mall and you know it was really at that size where you had to drive the wedges in and they had to basically be buried before you know anything started to happen it wasn't a you know small log that would just split nicely but having said that just taking some of the wet wood we had we had a couple of i don't know probably you know, half inch, one inch, like sort of slices that the guys had left with a chainsaw. And I lent some of those against a wall. And I came back the next morning and they would basically deformed like a Salvador Dali clock. They'd just taken the shape. You know, that's an oak. It was mind boggling to me. You're not going to go in, into a lumberyard and buy oak that will just, you know, flop over like a pancake because it's got right. that amount of water content in it. I'm just working with a few of those pieces I roughed out a couple of things that I wanted to use for uh, turning later on but when it's wet you know maybe a hard cheese but it it's just almost unrecognizable as a wood to work with
1: well the latest episode of the lumber update podcast just came out this week as we're recording this and I actually talk a little bit about compressed wood specifically cedar compressed wood and you can take, You know, we we do steam bending all the time for Windsor chair making and things like that. But there is a a company in Japan called the Hida Furniture Company, and they specialize in cedar compressed technology. In fact, they they invented it years ago. And they'll take like a four by four post, four inch by four inch post of cedar, throw it in a, you know, in a steam box for however long, then put it in a press. And they actually compress from a four by four down to like a two by four or even thinner than that. I think they go as thin as 18 mil on the thickness. And all they're doing is just collapsing those cell fibers. And the crazy thing is, is they've taken a very, very low density Japanese cedar, uh, Cryptomerica japonica, or similar to Western red cedar. Australian yellow, Tunis is a lot denser, but in the Southern hemisphere, I'm trying to speak to the Southern hemisphere here. That might be the closest you would get was an Australian cedar. But To take that low-density wood, press it, and out comes something that's like hard maple in density. Same species, it's just been compressed down, totally transforms everything just because it was sopping wet. You know, and as it dries, it keeps that particular shape. So, you know, that's one of the things that we have to start thinking about is the workability of a particular species of wood varies dramatically depending on how wet it is. And wet or green wood is not evil, there's no reason to think, you know, oh, I can't touch that because it's not six to eight percent moisture. A whole world opens to you when you start working with 20, 25% moisture content woods, and they're not going to explode on you. They're not going to expand and and you know, lightning's gonna strike you because you dared to use something that wasn't 10% moisture, which you know is is terrible for somebody who works for a commercial lumberyard to say that because I'm actually, you know, no, it's gotta be six to eight percent. You've got to buy it from us because it's six to eight percent. You know, certainly there are reasons why you wanna use, you know, very kiln-dried lumber. But it's all kinds of stuff that you can use out there.
0: On that line, I mean, you know, when, when Dennis is obviously going off into the woods there, you know, he's selecting his tree and he's kind of making the project out of quite a finite resource in terms of, you know, having having to chop what he's got into the pieces that he wants. And, you know, that strikes me that that's like quite a big 3D jigsaw puzzle where you're trying to figure out what you're getting out of there and whatever. Have have you ever done any projects where you've, you know, that joint stool from a tree or whatever, where you've gone and you've tried to make a project out of uh, a a single log or something like that? Have you done anything like that?
1: Sure, sure. I've got uh, five Windsor chairs and three of them started with a log. And it's fascinating. I mean, generally, you know, you've got you've to see what the log will give you. I mean, you split that big log and some of them split great, others don't. And sometimes you don't know until you, till you crack it open kind of what type of material you're dealing with, but you need to think in terms of length. You can split a bucked log into smaller parts, but you can't make it any longer. You know, if it's bucked to 36 inches long, you're not going to get a 40 inch piece out of it. So that's where you start. And you think okay what are my longest pieces what am i going to need for my legs what am i going to need for my bow etc cetera, etc cetera. and you you start with a saw and you start by by bucking to that particular dimension and then you just start splitting and kind of see what you end up with knowing kind of what your approximate widths are and you, you like if you have a round piece you automatically imagine it as a square you know, if it's going to be like, you know, a one inch round shaped piece with a spoke shape, then I'm going to need like a one, one and a quarter inch square block or stick that can be split out of that leg. And it's, I actually find it incredibly liberating because you find you're able to use the tiniest piece for something as you're splitting it out. And the splitting is such satisfying, I think is the best word for it, satisfying work. And it's it's like the grossest and coarsest type of work that you can do. But here you're taking this huge log and with like, a you know, maybe 15 minutes of work and pounding with a fro and a wedge, you've got parts now that can be shaped within seconds on a shape horse with a draw knife. And it's really... It's fascinating work and you really have a good understanding of the structure of the tree. And by the time you actually hit that wood with a draw knife or a spokeshave or even a jack plane, you have an intimate understanding of how the grain works in that particular piece. And I mean, that's, that's invaluable. By the time you're getting down to that fine stuff, you inherently intimately understand the grain direction. And actually, if you've done it right, the grain direction is almost irrelevant because you've you know, riven out a piece where the grain is running perfectly parallel to the edge and the grain has no direction. It has a longitudinal direction. It goes either way because you've got it perfectly parallel. It's pretty cool. I've carved some bowls and things like that where you split some stuff out, but that's still a little bit more abstract, more sculptural. The work that Thomas Dennis does here where he's actually forming rails and stiles. One of these days, I, I would like to build one of those 17th century chests. The thing that's kept me from it is I have absolutely no place for anywhere in my house or anyone in my family. It's just a style that doesn't really lend itself to the modern world. That and the fact that my wife really doesn't like that style. So she's like, yeah, if you're gonna build that, get it out of the house as soon as it's done.
0: Your wife wouldn't like it, you know, with all those painted red and black details on the front, you know, to just bring out the colors in the living room, you know?
1: No, definitely not. She's not a fan of that style.
0: No, not so much. It's interesting, you know, you talk about that that learning that you get from uh, splitting the wood because I didn't work with curves initially with a a saw, you know, one of the more conventional tools. I was just doing curves with a chisel. But I I found that what had helped quite a lot is if you've been splitting your oak beforehand to get it to the rough dimension, you've got a pretty good idea of what happens when you stick a chisel in at the wrong angles. Uh, I mean, I, I, I certainly found that I learned quite a lot by sort of rough dimensioning. That made me very cautious the first time I was trying to cut a curve out with a chisel because I knew that if I put it in at certain angles, that the result was going to be catastrophic.
1: What is the difference between a chisel and a fro? Chisel's sharper, but it's still exactly the same tool. It's still a wedge. Or for that matter, that wedge that you were pounding on with a sledgehammer when you still had a a whole log, it's exactly the same simple machine. The beauty of a chisel is it can be sharpened to a razor edge and it can be used like a knife but it really wants to be a wedge. And understanding when a chisel stops being a wedge and can be a knife and vice versa is probably one of the key tenets of hand tool woodworking, I think. And Shannon, talking
0: about hand tool woodworking, I mean, you know, you you read these books about joiners and I guess, you know, later on about cabinet makers, et cetera. They had a very limited um set of tools you know the one of the depictions in the book is i think from 1688 and you know you see things like hatchet fro you know gimlet there's one hand saw in there pairing chisel a mortise chisel and then a few marking things and you know three planes you know talking to anyone who's out there that feels that you need this fully kitted out workshop to get going with hand tools i mean i certainly feel that you can do a hell of a lot with a, a very very small tool list and I know you had that minimalist uh, tool list for your orientation semester, but here's a person living in that mindset of not having this fully kitted shop with everything that he could possibly buy.
1: Well, and if you are working, you know, with the wood as Dennis was, you need even less. Certainly working with the green wood means that, you know, working the wood itself is a heck of a lot easier, but saws are much, much less of an issue. I remember that being another revelation, you know, Peter's like, I have one saw and I use it to cut tenon shoulders. He splits his tenon cheeks, you know, there's no tenon saw. It's essentially a back saw. He didn't call it a carcass saw or a sash saw or a tenon saw or whatever. It was just a saw because it was such a minor element in his joinery work. And he had one chisel and all of his mortises were exactly that size. You know, there was there was no reason to have a set of chisels on a variety of sizes because whatever the chisel he had was the size of the mortise that was going to be chopped. And because he was splitting out his logs or splitting out his parts from a log, he was letting the the riven face kind of dictate the shape of that part. So the jack plane came into into Uh, play a lot but because he had already riven away one part using that wedge using the fro or the wedge to actually create that first riven face he just paralleled that face using the jack plane and the beauty of especially something like oak with the grain being so pronounced and the what should we call them in the mineral world we call it a cleavage plane how it cleaves so cleanly tells you okay if i make with the jack plane if i make a face that's parallel to what i just split it's going to be along the grain so you just kind of work with the jack plane. And that does all the work. Jointers become much, 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 much less important. And smoothing planes, again, become even less important because with the wood being as green as it is, you know, the smoothing plane doesn't really, isn't really going to do all that much. The wood's going to clean up nicely because it's already nice and wet to begin with. So yeah, I mean, starting with with a log, you need some different tools. Like you're going to need some wedges and things and a fro to pop parts apart, but you're not going to need a full-size handsaw. You're not going to need a full-size bow saw, you know, if you're thinking in continental terms. The only time you're going to use a saw is going to be when you get to joinery. All the rough dimensioning stuff is done with an axe or a wedge, you know, and the finest of the rough dimensioning work is done with a plane. Totally different way of working wood. But you can also start to see how that style, that Jacobean style, that pilgrim style of furniture is really defined by that. You know, in the 17th century, you couldn't just go to the local blacksmith and get a well-made blade to to put into a wooden hand plane, or you couldn't get a well-made chisel that you could make a handle for. You certainly couldn't get spring steel to make a nice backsaw. You had an axe. So you made furniture using an axe. and. All of that style of furniture, that jointed furniture as they call it, or boarded furniture, is furniture that is distinctly made using an axe and a wedge and maybe a chisel, occasionally a foreplane. It's kind of fascinating.
0: Incredible what they do with it. I was watching a documentary the other day, which is about rebuilding a castle in France. And, you know, they're putting it together with all the traditional building methods. But part of the documentary, they were, you know, just showing someone doing the the kind of gross carpentry, the boxes for the commoners and the carpentry in the castle. But again, they, they had one saw and the saw was the only use that they were using it for was for cutting off pegs. You know, all the rest of it was was hatchet and splitting and, and, and they were using them to put out some really, really fine material. So I guess if you've practiced with them and you've got the skill, you you can get some some great results.
1: Oh yeah. That same year as it would Woodworking in America, I think was probably the first year that they did an event called the Hand Tool Olympics. And you know, you would... You had to rip a 36-inch long board. You had to joint that same board, you know, and you were all timed and, you know, your deviation would would subtract points from your time and everything. And there was a challenge that was thrown down to Peter Follensby, or actually, I think he was probably hassling somebody who was standing there with a saw. He's saying, why are you working so hard with that saw? You know, it'd be much faster with an axe. So suddenly a challenge was, you know, the gauntlet was thrown down, who could make this rip cut? faster and more accurately. So it was actually Mike Seamson who uh, organized the whole event versus Peter. And Mike is an amazing Sawyer. I mean, he ripped through that 36-inch long board with a 28-inch handsaw and probably did it in 11 seconds or something like that. But Peter took about two seconds to split it to the line and then three seconds to refine it with an ax right back to the line. And he had a dead flat and square edge because he went from that coarse tool as a splitting to a slightly more medium tool and kind of refining a little bit closer back to the line then he choked up on the handle to the point where he was actually holding the axe blade and used it like a chisel like a pairing chisel and paired right back to the line all of 11 seconds from rough board to jointed and square edge and i mean that was i actually have it on on video I'll go way way back in my blog i'll try to find that link but if it still exists because i remember The social media platform I was using no longer exists anymore, so the the video may not be there. I'd have to check. It was eye-opening. You know what someone who's good with an axe can do. You can go from coarse, medium to fine with the same tool just by changing your grip on it. Of course, what's the one thing we always say in the hand tool school? Sharp fixes everything. So that axe has got to be sharp first or it's not going to do any good for anybody.
0: Shannon, I thought the one thing you always said in the hand tool school was you can never have too many saws. Eh? <laughs> so that,
1: well, yeah, I do have a bit of a saw problem.
0: And yeah. it's contagious, I must tell you. <laughs> I used to have a plane problem, but you've uh, you've refocused my efforts in, in another direction now.
1: Well, and I think when you go the other direction, you know, we're talking about how the axe is so important, how the saw is so unimportant when we're dealing with a log and green wood. But you know, that can be harder to get in today's modern edge. Most of this, most of us are used to buying boards, more importantly, kiln dried boards. And more and more, it's not rough sawn boards at the lumber yard, but it's surfaced on, on two sides or four sides. So it's already planed. So the plane has less and less importance. You know, I've got a, a nice collection of planes, but I use my saws four to five times more than I use my planes. So I have always said the saw is probably the most important tool. Until I go out in the backyard and I'm actually looking out my window looking at my paltry stack of logs, I've got three. It's nice, I've got three. I've got plans for them all, but that work out there is, is using an axe and you know a couple of different types of axes. and what's important out there is the axe. But when I step inside my shop, what's most important for me here is saws and lots of them. <laughs> I've got them tuned for all kinds of different work because the wood that I'm working with, you know the primary tool is that saw. That's what does the dimensioning, the course, the medium, and the fine work for me.
0: For any of the listeners out there, there's a fantastic YouTube, uh, Renaissance Woodworker, that relatively recently, where you go through your collection there and explain how the different ones have been configured. And I certainly found that very interesting. In terms of doing a a furniture piece like this, um, Shannon, I think that you, you obviously can learn so much from deciding to get A, into the mindset of, of the person making the furniture piece and B, choosing a period piece and trying to make that authentically. In your career, was there a specific period piece that you really felt that you'd learned a lot from or just had a lot of fun making that that stood out for you?
1: Uh, I mean, it's got to be the, the first Windsor chair I made. Well, it was really my first exposure to the spokeshave, which t- to today is still my favorite tool. Despite all the saws I have, as much as I love saws, the spokeshave is just... There's so much freedom. It's it's more like sculpting than, than anything else. But the choice of different woods in a Windsor chair for specific reasons, because most Windsor chairs are painted. You know, only very, very recently have you seen a few of the the Windsor makers are actually, you know, they're they're still putting a stain on it, but are kind of leaving a natural wood finish. And and actually going back to painting is becoming even more popular because guys like Peter Galbert are, you know, showing all these different layered milk paint finishes. But the fact that we chose a species for the seat in most of the instances, either poplar or a northeastern white pine, because it's easy to carve. That was the reason. We chose a, a species that doesn't have a lot of big pores, that could can look a little weird when you start carving and sculpting. When you're thinking in three dimensions and hollowing out the seat, those pores can be a pain. You know, they get elongated you take a species like red oak, which while it carves great and low relief, like we see in in these pieces in the book, when you start carving a little bit deeper, those pores kind of elongate and they become these gaping chasms that become a real problem when it comes to finishing it. So you choose a species that is easy to carve for the particular application. You also choose a species that's really easy to get nice wide planks and, you know, northeastern white pine grows like a weed. It's really easy to get an 18, 24 inch wide board of it. And if not, you can usually glue up two boards of it to get your seat. But then when you move to the legs, well, the legs are primarily turned and we needed real strength with really fine delicately turned legs i mean there's sections on a windsor baluster leg that are incredibly thin five-eighths an inch in diameter but yet they've got to support the entire weight of this chair to use a close grain species very close a close pore diffuse porous wood like hard maple that holds those fine details in the lathe really well yet holds its strength in a very small diameter but then you get up into the spindles and the bow if you're talking about a sackback Windsor chair the the actual sackback and the bow itself well those are steam bent and steam bending maple not something i'd recommend because again those pores are so small there's very little dead air to compress into as you're steam bending so you choose a species that has ring porous nature and big wide open pores and red oak comes to mind right away and plus it splits and it rives incredibly well. So now you can rive out a steam bent piece that is perfectly parallel to the grain so you get no grain run out and you can bend that thing, tie it into a knot, and it's not going to split on you because the strongest grain is continuous, one continuous growth leg or growth ring from one end of the bow to the other. Then you get into the spindles. Well, what really defines a Windsor chair is that delicate, delicate nature. Those spindles are three-eighths of an inch, if not sometimes smaller than that in diameter. Um, Up at the thin part, the bulb might get up to a half an inch in diameter. Uh, The bottom tenon is maybe three-eighths. The top tenon can be three-sixteenths of an inch. Really, really delicate, yet so strong. So strong and highly flexible because you've riven out the white oak. You've relied upon the, the natural structural strength properties of that wood to create those spindles that, when you sit on them, they flex and they kind of conform to your body and make it very comfortable, yet remain super, super strong. And you're using three different species for three very distinctly different reasons, structural reasons, in a chair that is going to last you hundreds and hundreds of years. And you started with a log, and there was no need to to dry anything. I mean, certainly there's some drying that goes on, but then there's that whole aspect of playing with the differential dryness of various species by using a tenon that's super super dry and sticking it into a somewhat dry seat. You know, the moisture in the seat is is wicked up into the the dry tenon. The tenon expands and the mortise in the seat shrinks and it locks together due to that differential in moisture content. That was a whole new world for me. And it completely changed my view on on how furniture is built, not only from a hand tool perspective, but how the wood science itself can be exploited to create ridiculously strong structures. So yeah, hands down, the Windsor chair was was a major, major moment for me.
0: And Shannon, I think that's very impressive. I'm, I'm going to tell you, when you start talking about spindles on Windsor chairs, I think about that scene in The Patriot. And <laughs> I said to my wife the one day, I think Mel Gibson had just gone and wiped out an entire British you know column on his own. And I said to my wife, I understand exactly how he feels. And, and she said, well, what do you mean um, someone's killed your son? I said, no, I understand how he feels about breaking that chair. And I think <laughs> that if that happened to me repeatedly, I'd also go out and <laughs> thin out the neighborhood because it looks like those are incredibly tight tolerances there. And I'm, I'm sure there's at least some you know, broken spindles out there and some, some listeners who've got some sympathy with that. So maybe just sort of bringing the book to a close. I mean, when we get to the end of the book, it feels like we're at the end of the era, and I think we've spoken about that of of really this move from joiners that would do this end to end, you know, guard into the forest and see the whole process through. And as we move into the next century, we're going to hit the the age of the cabinet maker, someone who's working with sawn wood that he's been getting, whether it's from a sawmill or from a sawyer. But that we're now moving into a different time in in history. It feels to me, you know, there's quite a lot maybe of aspirational with woodworkers today where, you know, you look back at the cabinet maker in history and you think that's what I'm doing. But I feel a very close affinity with this joiner or this country carpenter just going and making a project end to end, doing something today, doing something different. As you say, having to juggle with the fact that he has to make a living and keep the lights on at home. So I really enjoyed the book and felt a little bit sad at the end when you get to that but it must have been a very satisfying way of working. And I think that there's some parallels with, you know, Woodworker today that if you can just enjoy all the elements, you know, not rush through the project, but enjoy every part of it, do the different processes, enjoy the sawing while you're doing the sawing, enjoy the uh, dimensioning while you're doing that. I think you can really have a lot of fun. And, you know, certainly as the book finished, that was the last thought I really had about the book.
1: No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. It's a very, um, you know, as the book ends, he his customer is coming to kind of approve the chest. And, you know, the, the last sentence is talking about, you know, they agreed that he would come and settle up in two weeks and they would load the chest onto his horse and he'd be done. So you, you kind of, you see this chest from log all the way through to happy customer. So it is this very satisfying end to the whole thing. And it's kind of, you're right. You've got that feeling of not only is it the end of another day, the end of another project, but kind of the end of an era. The book itself is actually quite short. What is it like, 130 some pages or something like that? But then there's this whole epilogue and a series of notes and kind of a bibliography, which has all kinds of interesting information in it that runs for 20, 30 more pages. And um, in the epilogue, the the author actually talks about when uh, Dennis actually died and kind of how things started to change. And I mean, it was it was major upheaval. This was really the end of that country carpenter and the beginning of the cabinet maker the beginning of piecework and specialized trades where you know you really couldn't just be that carpenter working in a village kind of being that jack of all trades you know you were now relegated if you were going to be a joiner then all you're using is the mortise and tendon and you were not allowed to use the dovetail joint but you know there weren't any dovetail joints in Jacobean furniture because it just that was a more specialized thing that required more specialized tooling that your average rural carpenter is not really going to have that tooling or that level of accuracy to produce that type of joint. And the styles themselves didn't call for it. All of the furniture in this period was all frame and panel, aka all mortise and tenon joinery. It wasn't until the you know the French got all uppity with their you know the Queen Anne style and you know the the whole restoration of the crown in England and William and Mary came onto the scene and somebody started to say well look let's uh, dovetail some boxes together and put them on turned legs and that changed the style completely and that trickled down to the trades now suddenly you were dovetailing a box you were turning legs well that's not something that that average village carpenter could do you needed a specialized craftsman you needed a turner and you needed a cabinet maker and that was the beginning of that shall we call it diversification of the trades and specialization of that continued to, to specialize all the way into, you know, the 19th century. When we started looking at federal pieces and we had specialized patterning makers and specialized inlay makers, you know, specialized turners again. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. This was the last period in history where you had that guy in that village somewhere that was harvesting a tree and building a piece of furniture out of it.
0: Shannon, I think uh, on that note, you know, I'd like to thank you for, you know, taking your time. And, you know, we speak about the end of the era. This is the last episode of what I'm calling the first series. And, you know, I think it is a beautiful way to wrap up these first bunch of books that I've got. I'm really hoping in the future that we'll have you on talking about some of the design books and some of the specific um, furniture style books. I know you're a big advocate that when you get a little bit into your woodworking career, that you should really be looking at books for inspiration and books that help you with design. And maybe, you know, we'll get you on to talk about a book that fits into that category but thank you very much i think for any of the listeners that are out there if you want more of shannon and i'm sure you do you're really spoiled for choice because there's the renaissance woodworker which is becoming virtually a weekly youtube at the moment shannon you've been putting a lot of those out and obviously the lumber industry and the wood talk podcast so that that's great if you want to listen to that in a commute or wherever you're listening to your podcasts but I think, you know, final shout out to the Fantastic Hand Tool School. You know, I'm a member and I love that. But I believe it's honestly one of the best woodworking communities and instruction on the internet. I think you've created a fantastic community there. Beautiful, respectful bunch of people. It doesn't matter what kind of question you're asking or, you know, what you're putting out there. There's just really a great bunch of people contributing, sharing, going out of their way to help other people. So you've really done a great thing
1: there. It's a fantastic bunch of folks over there. Always a, always a pleasure to, to dive into that community because you go to other communities and it's like, wow, it's like a wild west. But no, it's, it's very friendly, very helpful. I wish I could say that it was, it was uh, entirely my doing, but you know, it's the community that built itself. So it's been a, a wonderful thing to just kind of watch it grow organically. It's a tribute to hand tool workers everywhere. Very nice bunch of folks. A little weird, but a nice bunch of folks.
0: Super. Thank you, Shannon. Oh, my um...
1: pleasure, my pleasure.
0: So let's take a look at some of the book's vital stats. The Artisan of Ipswich, Craftsmanship and Community in Colonial New England is written by Robert Turule and it's 170 pages long. As at August 2020, the book will cost $27 for a paperback and bizarrely $29.50 for a Kindle edition. I'd suggest you go and get the paperback. As Shannon and I have discussed, there's a lot of practical information for woodworkers But the book is broken up into five chapters, which I think really create a rounded and comprehensive picture of the environment that he worked in, as well as the work that he did. The first chapter is called Ipswich, and it sets the scene of the area in which he worked. There's some fascinating historical information, and I'm sure everyone will learn a little bit about the times and the environment. Robert Turule certainly doesn't pull any punches in this book. Later on we've got the fascinating incident between him and his apprentice. Really something that just looks like a lot of profiteering and brings into question some of the social and legal precedents of the time. Chapter 2, Oak, the material of choice, is 24 pages long and I think it's a really, really good way of looking at the material and understanding what that meant to the joiner. There's information on the felling and the storage, how green or wet the wood was when they were working, and it sets a nice backdrop for the work that he's going to do in subsequent chapters, because it starts to inform some of what we find in the finished piece, some of those slight inconsistencies in widths or variations in dimensions, all of them are brought back to the fact that ultimately he is working from a chopped up tree, as opposed to going down to a lumberyard and getting perfectly S4S planks. The fourth chapter talks about the time at work, and while you might be inclined to write that off as boring historical information. I'm going to read a short extract here just to give you an idea of Robert's incredible literary style. Approaching Ipswich from the west in the latter part of the 17th century, coming on the road from Rowley and Newbury beyond, one passed through an orderly agricultural landscape. At this end of town, just behind the backyards of the houses, lay some common fields. The Rowley Road was called West End, where it entered the village. About a dozen houses lay along the street. At first one saw the peaks of roofs, chimneys, and puffs of wood smoke. On coming closer, the fences became clear. The inhabitants included two shoemakers, two real rights, one carpenter, one brickmaker, and several husbandsmen. In front of every house, and separating all the house lots, endless ribbons of weathered brown pickets, close enough together to keep our chickens and piglets, fenced in the yards. Almost everything in fact was some shade of brown. The unpainted fences, clapboards on the houses, shingles on the roofs, plain boarding on the outbuildings, the roads, house yards and barnyards, the few shade trees in winter, all brown. Otherwise, depending on the time of year, green or white alternated, but in any season the village itself wore mostly brown. A few well to do folk had the painter pick out a house's trim in bright vermilion, but that bit of carefully chosen ostentation did little to change the overwhelming brown of the village. The white, clapboarded New England village was almost two centuries away. Another short extract, this time from Chapter 3, Thomas Dennis in the Woods. One clear full morning, in October 1669, Thomas Dennis left his house on County Street, near the meeting house in the heart of the village of Ipswich. Now that the crops and hay were in, and the full ploughing done, Dennis could turn his full attention to joinery. He needed timber. In the faint pre-dawn light, Dennis easily found the way behind his house to his joiner's shop. He felt just inside the door for the handle of his axe, which he would use to mark the six trees of his trade that the Ipswich selectmen, at a special meeting the previous February, had granted Dennis, one of 61 who received liberty to cut from the commons. The town had deemed Dennis's trade to be essential to the community. Other artisans awarded grants in 1669 included coopers who made barrels, wheelwrights who made carts and agricultural implements, and turners who made chairs and spinning wheels. They would be looking too. In the woods, Dennis needed to be attentive to several different bodies of knowledge. He had to know which standing trees would be best for his purposes, to see into the trees to get the best possible pieces for his furniture. His craft began here, with the ability to read the growing trees in the Ipswich landscape. At 35 pages, the final chapter, Chapter 5, Thomas Dennis in the Shop, is one of the longer chapters. And this is the chapter where aspirant hand tool woodworkers will get a lot of practical information as we step through the process of making the chest, step by step, accompanied by the thought process of the joiner in question here. Once that's done... The epilogues, as mentioned by Shannon, have some very interesting information about the process that the author went through to understand the construction of this chest, and there's definitely some nuggets in there. So while the book is relatively short, at 170 odd pages all in, it's certainly an excellent book that I think was very evocative in terms of the writing, and I think it helps you to really see into the time. I'm reminded of that phrase, the past is another land. And I think that this is a really, really good tour guide to that land. I believe that any hand tool woodworker who reads this book will gather useful information, but more importantly, maybe just shift their philosophy and their thinking about the time and about today's times in a way that's very valuable. Sometimes I think we get very, very caught up on fine woodworking or making something that's Instagram worthy. And yet I think that there's a beauty in the simple pleasures of processing wood and making something functional. If that means a few of the dovetails are gappy, so what? If that means you have to make a few design compromises because the reclaimed wood that you've been using is only in a certain size and there's only so much you can do with it, again, so what? Let's think back to our ancestors and the troubles that they had to deal with when making a piece. The complete lack of box stores or timber merchants to go and get a quick part or a quick piece of wood from. I think it's worth contemplating and hopefully it will give you a little bit more peace in mind in the shop when you're working on your latest project and due to COVID there's some kind of shortage that is stopping you from going out and getting what you normally would get. So where does that leave us on the book? I'd suggest that anyone that enjoys the historical aspects and the techniques used historically will get great value out of this book. I believe it can stand alongside the grates, and consequently, I'm giving it an 8 out of 10. And I'll leave you with a thought. Maybe it's time just to make something with all those scrap pieces you've got in your shop. Something beautiful, where you're constrained by the choice of material and the selection that you've got on hand. And remember, while you're making those beautiful things, keep reading. If you have any comments or suggestions, drop me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. If you've got a favourite furniture book in a specific style, maybe send it along as a suggestion for the second series. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me on Patreon.